1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: This is an apostrophe
2: podcast production.
1: As We Regret to Inform You, The Rejection Podcast. I went to every single record company and they all said, this guy is terrible. He's nothing. Jay-Z. When Jay-Z was six years old, he had a favorite song the Jackson 5's Enjoy Yourself. When that ditty came on the radio, he'd rally his three older siblings as backup dancers and bust a move in the middle of his grandma's living room. It was the 70s, and the Jay-Z persona as we know it was still a decade away. He was known then by his given name, Sean Carter. The Carters loved music. If it wasn't the Jacksons, it was the Temptations, the Ohio Players, or the Isley Brothers. His parents lined their Brooklyn brownstone with milk crates full of records. Jay-Z later said on Letterman, you either grow up in a family that plays instruments or you're exposed to enough Stevie Wonder at a young age that it becomes who you are. In 1975, his family moved into Marcy Projects, a public housing unit in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. In many ways, it was a typical neighborhood Sean and his friends chased ice cream trucks, basketball titles, and girls. But the 27-building complex was also a lesson in survival. Gunshots echoed down the hallways and surrounding streets most nights. The Carters had to quickly adapt to their new normal, learning where to be, where not to be, and how fast to duck when guns are drawn. Sean's father took it upon himself to teach his youngest son the new brand of street smarts he would need to navigate this strange new world. The two spent hours together, talking and walking around Brooklyn. Sometimes his dad would leave him alone somewhere random in the city to teach Sean how to find his way home. He looked up to his father. He was his hero, his protector. But when Sean was 11 years old, his dad walked out on the family. Leaving Sean feeling inconsolably rejected. His sister Michelle said in the documentary The Rise and Rise of Jay Z that he became withdrawn after that. He no longer had a mentor to turn to. Their mother was now faced with supporting a family of five on her own. The pain was overwhelming, so Sean Carter pulled out a notebook and started writing. <laughs> Sean spent elementary school at the top of his class. He excelled in English and idolized his 6th grade teacher, Miss Loudon. One of her favorite lessons was to pose a question to the students using an unfamiliar word. To answer the question, they'd have to look up the fancy word in the dictionary. 6th grade Sean scored at 12th grade language levels. He was quiet, but well-liked. His friends called him jazzy. Two of his classmates, Christopher and Trevor, would go on to become rap icons Notorious B.I.G. and Busta Rhymes. Miss Loudon remembers Sean as having big brains and sad eyes. Recess was met with fistfights, and within a few years, drugs trickled into the schoolyard. But the classroom was a sanctuary, and Sean took home a dictionary. John's notebooks were filled with what his neighbor called chicken scratches. He wrote illegible teensy little words his siblings and cousins couldn't decipher if they stole his pages. But after dark when he thought they were all asleep, he'd break out his notes and read them aloud as he banged beats on the dining room table using forks and knives. That's when his mother realized those chicken scratches were lyrics. So she pooled their pennies and bought her son a boombox. Keeping him at the dining room table meant keeping him off the streets, and that was worth the sacrifice. Sean became obsessed with the boombox. He quickly drifted away from his Motown roots and started listening exclusively to rap and hip hop. He liked Run DMC and Dougie Fresh and played their tapes on repeat until the lyrics were tattooed on his brain. He also took an interest in reading consuming anything and everything he could get his hands on. That's when he discovered the holy grail of all books, a rhyming dictionary, and there was no turning back. Every morning, Sean would practice his rhymes in the mirror, perfecting his pronunciation and phrasing. Even in those earliest of days, his style was unique, It was relaxed and had an air of accessibility to it, something Vanity Fair writer Alex Blimes would later attribute to the way Jay-Z punctuates his sentences, often with pauses, sighs, or laughs. He started entering rap battles at school and winning. Coming second to Sean was like coming 50th. He wouldn't stop until he was undefeated. Suddenly, word spread across the projects that young Sean Carter was talented and a fellow Marcy resident named Jazzo was intrigued. Everyone in Marcy knew Jazzo. He was one of the original Brooklyn rappers and the first rap artist in history to land a deal with EMI Records. Basically, he was the one everyone thought might actually make it. Jazzo was older and more experienced than Sean, but as soon as he heard Sean rap, he knew he had major potential. So he took him under his wing and the two started writing music together. When Jazzo's first single dropped, he featured Sean on the track and gave him a cameo in the music video. It was Sean's in. If the album took off, he was already on EMI's radar. He could be next. That's when he officially dropped the name Sean Carter and chose Jay-Z as his artist persona. Jay-Z came from the word Jazzy, his childhood nickname. The two-syllable hyphenate was in honor of his mentor, Jazzo. And finally, it was an homage to his roots, Brooklyn. The J and Z subway trains rumbled through the borough every day, mere minutes from Marcy Projects. Jazzo flew to London, England, to record more of his album and brought his protege, Jay-Z, along with him. But it quickly became clear that EMI had different plans for Jazzo. He didn't fit the mold of what they were looking for in a hip-hop artist. They didn't want the King of Brooklyn. They wanted the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Jazzo's relationship with EMI soured. His album flopped, and Jay-Z felt defeated. It showed Jay that even if you managed to do the impossible as a rapper and land a record deal, it still wasn't a guarantee. If Jazo couldn't make it, Maybe Jay-Z couldn't make it either. He'd have to find another way to support himself. In 2005, Jay-Z said in an interview with GQ that growing up in the projects was like being crabs in a barrel. You pull each other down trying to get out, grabbing at whatever you can, and eventually, out of desperation, you're ready to do something dangerous. The 80s ushered in a crack epidemic. Staggering numbers of people in low-income areas were at the mercy of the drug, on both ends of the transaction. The chemical stench of crack permeated every carpet fiber at Marcy Projects. Empty vials floated in the sidewalk puddles, and users walked the hallways at night like zombies. At age 16, Jay-Z was approached by the man who ran a small shop across the street. He told him he liked his style, and subtly recruited him to sell a few grams. Jay wanted to help his mother. She worked full-time, and yet they still had to choose between the gas bill and the phone bill each month. So he took the shop owner up on his offer. Remarkably, he was soon making about $2,000 a day, but it quickly grew even more lucrative. Not long after, he got his driver's license and bought himself a Lexus. Jay-Z dropped out of high school. Every minute in class was time he could have spent conducting business. Between deals, he had a lot of downtime, standing on street corners or sitting in cars. So he used those spare moments to work on rhymes. He wrote songs on the backs of crumpled receipts or paper bags. And eventually, he didn't need to write them down at all, composing dozens of songs that lived only in his mind. Jay was making as much money as some of the successful artists he looked up to. He could buy the same jewelry, the same designer clothing, his cars had TVs in them. But as years went by, the writing was on the wall. Jay-Z later said to Vanity Fair that at some point you have to have an exit strategy from the drug world because your window is very small. You're either going to get locked up or you're going to die. A friend of his was a DJ named Clark Kent. Clark Kent said that Jay-Z was the best rapper he'd ever heard, even better than his mentor Jazzo. He took it upon himself to try to convince Jay to leave the drug game and give the music industry another shot. So Clark Kent yanked Jay-Z off the corner and brought him over to his house. He played Jay a beat and within 15 minutes of getting acquainted with the rhythm, Jay-Z laid down an entire track. The two recorded 40 songs together. And in the meantime, Clark Kent put Jay-Z's voice on any other song or remix he was working on for other artists. They assembled the best tracks and booked meetings with every major label in the country. EMI, Atlantic, RCA, Columbia. But every meeting was a dead end. The labels just didn't get Jay-Z's sound. They said there was no market for his brand of music and ushered him out of the room. The more door slams Jay-Z faced from the music industry, the more appealing it became to keep selling drugs. Not only because of the obvious financial aspects, Jay later said, but because it would have put an end to the pain of the rejections. But DJ Clark Kent wasn't going to give up on Jay-Z. He thought a professional manager might have a better shot at getting through to music labels. So he introduced him to a man named Damon Dash. Dash was a music manager from Harlem. Normally, Brooklynites don't get along with uptown folk, but Jay and Dash were kindred spirits and got along from day one. Dash booked him into every open mic, rap battle, and underground show that would take him. They traveled across the boroughs, and Jay quickly began developing a fan base. Then Dash connected Jay-Z with a rap trio called Original Flavor, who had secured a recording deal with Atlantic Records. The group was blown away by Jay, so they invited him to rap on one of their tracks called Can I Get Open? The song blew up, and when the group performed live, Jay's part stole the show. So he went on tour with Original Flavor. And along the way, executives from major labels began approaching Jay. They were interested in the kid from Brooklyn who could rap faster and yet clearer than any other rapper in the game. But by the time the actual meetings rolled around, those same executives always seemed to have a reason to back out. And the ink never met the paper. We'll be right back. It became clear to Jay-Z and Damon Dash that breaking into the business the traditional way wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to leave Jay's success in the hands of label heads who might never see enough potential in rap artists. So they made a business decision. They started their own label and called it Rockefeller Records. The name Rockefeller was a historically iconic New York name. It represented money and status, but it was also a white name, so they made a few adjustments. Rockefeller rented a small office space in Manhattan. It was less than ideal. There were cockroaches in the water cooler, mice, and rats in the walls. They went from radio station to radio station trying to get DJs to play Jay's songs. But no matter how many times they called or how many tapes they sent, Rockefellers records weren't given any airtime. So they started printing CDs themselves and selling them out of the trunks of their cars. As Billboard magazine later said, if there was one thing a boy from Marcy Projects knew, it was how to push product. But to the rest of the world, they pretended they'd made it. They traveled around in a limo and wore leather Jay-Z jackets, getting attention anywhere they could. And suddenly, people on the rap scene wanted to know what Jay-Z was wearing, who was in his entourage, and what he was drinking, usually champagne. Jay-Z came out with a song called Dead Presidents. When he performed it live, the crowd went wild. But without radio DJ support, they'd never break into the mainstream. And there was one DJ in particular who held all the cards. Funkmaster Flex. Flex was a pioneer. Not only was he a disc jockey on Hot 97, one of the most popular radio stations in New York, but he also started a hip-hop radio show at a time when the station was exclusively dedicated to pop. So, Jay Z and Dash called Hot 97 every day requesting their own song. And eventually, Funkmaster Flex gave it a listen. He loved it, and Jay Z landed his first airtime. It was a huge leap forward. It didn't just earn Dead President's attention, but amazingly, the B side of that record made its way onto the soundtrack of the Nutty Professor movie with Eddie Murphy. The momentum was starting to build. Then, Jay-Z reunited with an old classmate. Notorious B.I.G., also known as Biggie Smalls, was on the ascent of his career. He'd already come out with major hits in Juicy and Big Papa. Biggie heard Jay's music and reached out to ReConnect. Jay and Biggie had two main things in common. They were both Brooklyn boys, and neither of them wrote down their lyrics. So they bonded instantly and became inseparable. Jay had only released singles up until that point, but he was putting together his first album called Reasonable Doubt, and he featured Biggie's vocals on one of the tracks. The record was autobiographical. As Billboard later put it, It told a harrowing coming-of-age story in a way people who'd never heard of the Marcy Projects could understand. Reasonable Doubt earned Jay tremendous respect. It was heralded as lyrically brilliant and an instant classic. That is, to the rap inner circle. Despite Biggie's cameo, the album never broke the mainstream. But someone unexpected came knocking. As reasonable doubt circulated Brooklyn, the president of label Island Def Jam appeared at Rockefeller's doorstep. He wanted to make a deal. Instead of trying to poach Jay away from his own label, he proposed a partnership and offered to purchase a third of Rockefeller's business for $1.5 million. It was a good deal. Jay-Z would retain majority ownership of his music but have a major label's resources behind him. Sold. But in that time, Biggie Smalls was shot and killed in a drive by shooting in Los Angeles. It would go down as one of the biggest tragedies in hip hop history. Jay was inconsolable. He lost his mentor and lost his direction. It was a familiar feeling. Suddenly, there was a void in the hip hop world grieving fans wanted desperately to fill. And all eyes turned to Jay Z. Jay-Z's first album was met with fringe success. It didn't appeal to the broader market. So as he ventured into his next record, he decided to recalibrate his thinking and lean into the mainstream. And in 1997, his second album titled In My Lifetime Volume 1 was released. The record featured a single called Always Be My Sunshine. Jay-Z took a page out of Puff Daddy's playbook and sampled it with smooth R&B. They produced a music video showing Jay in a bright green suit and sunglasses, standing in front of colorful screens surrounded by choreographed dancers. Needless to say, it wasn't the Jay-Z fans had come to respect. It made him look like a sellout, and the album paled in comparison to his first. It was a difficult time for Jay-Z. Not only was he still grieving, Now, he was embarrassed, too. But he still had one thing going for him. Because of the success of Reasonable Doubt, the rap community didn't lose complete faith in his abilities as an artist. But they did sit back and think, maybe he isn't the next Biggie Smalls. Jay-Z dove quickly into damage control he'd have to do something unexpected, something that would earn back the respect of his fans. So the Rockefeller team came up with a fresh idea. They compiled Jay's previously unreleased music videos and other raw, uncut footage into an hour-long visual album called Streets Is Watching. It depicted an unapologetic look at real life in the projects, told through storytelling and music. There was no pop infusion, no smooth R&B, no blatant attempt at commercialism. It was pure Jay-Z. Funkmaster Flex said it was the ultimate hip-hop. Fans did everything they could to get their hands on a tape. Suddenly, the memory of lime green lapels and backup dancers was all but wiped. And Jay-Z was back in the game. The success of Reasonable Doubt and Streets Is Watching was undeniable but Jay-Z was still miles from mainstream recognition, unlike Puff Daddy, AKA P. Diddy. Diddy was getting prime Hot 97 airtime and was heading out on a major world tour featuring Lil' Kim, Busta Rhymes, and Usher, among others. And he extended an invitation to Jay-Z. It was an honor and a major opportunity. So Jay-Z and the Rockefeller crew joined the Puff Daddy and the family tour. The show was an elaborate production, but behind the scenes was less than glamorous. Sometimes Jay's dressing room was a bathroom stall, and with so many names on the bill, his set kept getting shorter and shorter. So halfway through the tour, Rockefeller bowed out. But before they flew back to New York, they heard a DJ spin a completely unexpected mix. It was a song from the Broadway musical, Annie. Dash looked at Jay and Jay looked at Dash. It was perfect. So they called the DJ who mixed the song and offered him $10,000 cash for the rights. He took the deal immediately and walked the tape over to Rockefeller HQ. The mix sampled from the 1977 song It's the Hard Knock Life from the musical. They played the track and Jay-Z jumped in immediately. He recorded the entire song in one take. They called it Hard Knock Life, Ghetto Anthem. Jay-Z could relate instantly to the lyrics. You could almost replace the word orphanage with Marcy Projects and not change another thing. It was a ghetto anthem. But as soon as they released the track, something amazing happened. The song transcended the rap community. It was relatable to every demographic. The older crowd was nostalgic for the original earworm, but the kids' voices in the song caught the attention of the youth. And most importantly, the message was relatable to anyone from any background who had ever struggled. Hot 97 was flooded with requests. So Rockefeller released three more singles It's All Right, Can I Get A?, and Money Ain't A Thing on what would become the Volume 2 Hard Knock Life album. Then, the unthinkable happened. The album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart, where it stayed for five consecutive weeks. It sold over five million copies worldwide, went five times platinum, and won the Grammy for best rap album in 1999, launching Jay-Z into the stratosphere. It was a hard knock life for Jay-Z. But he once said he believes everyone in the world is born with genius-level talent. And if you apply yourself to what you're genius at, it can take you anywhere in the world. Even from Marcy to Madison Square.
2: Jay-Z climbed a ladder in a very difficult industry to break into. And he was given a boost up to the first rungs, or a helping hand from higher ones, by many important people in his life. Like O, DJ Clark Kent, Damon Dash and Biggie Smalls. As someone once said, when you've made it in your own industry, you owe it to send the elevator back down. These people did that for Jay-Z. Even his time selling drugs on the street taught him two important lessons he carried with him throughout his career. First, Jay-Z said it taught him how to quickly evaluate people, so you know which ones to get away from and which ones to take with you. And second, he said his drug-dealing days crystallized the major obstacle in his career. He was dabbling in two worlds, selling on the streets and trying to make it in the music world at the same time. He realized that to make it in music, he had to fully commit. A lot of people never find success because they don't fully commit. Hedging bets, dipping a toe, or dividing your attention rarely works, no matter what you try and tell yourself. Nobody stumbles into success. It has to be a laser-like obsession. That drive also has to be true and genuine. When Jay-Z's first album didn't break the mainstream, he decided to pander to a trend. It was a huge mistake. But when he listened to his true inner voice, his music found its audience. He gave the inner city something they rarely ever got. He gave them a voice. He gave them validation. He gave them representation. And when he was turned down by label after label, he knew he had to find another way in. When opportunity doesn't knock, you have to build your own door. That's when Jay-Z started his own label. Proving, yet again that rejection has value. It's astounding how quickly he ascended once he made that decision. Jay-Z eventually became the president of Def Jam in 2004. That was just five years after he released Hard Knock Life. And that job allowed him to send the elevator back down. He was able to advance the careers of other rap, hip-hop, and R&B artists, including signing superstars Rihanna and NEO. Jay-Z was once asked what it was like to be a businessman. He had the best response. He said, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business, man. True words. He is an industry. He founded entertainment agency Roc Nation, He has a clothing brand, and he co-owns upscale sports bars across the nation. Today, he lives in a penthouse apartment in Tribeca, just four and a half miles from Marcy Projects. Never, ever give up.
0: John Corey Carter. Grammy Awards, 22. Grammy Nominations, 77. Most number one albums by a solo artist, 14. Net worth, $1 billion. Married to Beyonce, 12 years.
1: The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This episode is hosted and written by me. Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Jillian Gora. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. We regret to inform you that this series is engineered by Keith Oman. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you're interested in advertising on our show, click Advertise With Us on our site. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.